This is Macro Horizons, episode 97, Pardon Us, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of November 30th. And as one of the few holidays not plagued by rampant consumerism is upon us, we are reminded of all we have to truly be thankful for, like Cyber Monday. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market saw a bit of a give back from some of the recent bull flattening that occurred, and that was largely driven by a series of event risks posed by the transition of power into a Biden administration. The Mnuchin versus Powell back and forth regarding some of the key pandemic-inspired liquidity facilities was resolved in Mnuchin's favor, and the perception, at least at the time, was that that increased the probability that the Fed would need to follow through with a WAM extension at the December 16th meeting. Now, with Yellen, the presumed incoming Treasury Secretary, the notion that the Fed might delay a WAM extension, assuming that once Yellen does take the seat, that she will be more aggressive in pushing for additional fiscal stimulus, really does resonate and has been driving financial markets. The flip side is what we have seen in equities. Equities have struggled to do anything but price higher, frankly, and the buy-the-dip mentality is very much alive and well in equities, and as a result, financial conditions have remained remarkably easy, which also takes a fair amount of pressure off the Fed to deliver in the middle of December. This brings up one of the ongoing concerns that we often have around Fed events, and that is how much is priced in and how aggressive will the Fed be in attempting to outdove even the most dovish expectations. One of the clear patterns of a Powell Fed has been to overdeliver on the accommodation side in terms of monetary policy. We're running up against some of the practical constraints of what's in the Fed's toolbox. That's not to suggest that they don't have the ability to continue to do more. It's just this notion of diminishing returns for the amount of QE that one puts into the system. So assuming that the Fed would rather keep a WAM extension in reserve for 2021 and the prospects that the recovery at some point stumbles, then the risk is that the Fed disappoints the market, leading to a correction in equities, tightening financial conditions, and as a result, the FOMC would need to scramble into the end of the year to address a situation that they might have otherwise been able to avoid. That's going to be the biggest debate over the next several weeks, and we'll be listening to the incoming Fed commentary for any hints that there's a lean in one direction or another on that front. 
Well, that debate might have some clear ramifications for the outright level of treasury yields. At the moment, the uncertainty associated with the outcome is what's containing a more significant re-steepening of the curve. So imagining a situation where the Fed does deliver on a WAM extension, which one might think would flatten the curve, but if it's effectively priced in, it would be a buy the rumor, sell the fact event for the treasury market, and as a result, longer dated yields would drift higher into the end of the year. Our bigger concern is that the Fed disappoints and that triggers a reversal of the upside pressure and risk assets. That said, this is not an issue that's going to be resolved in the next week, and instead, we expect that the bulk of the tone in treasury trading will be a function of what we see in terms of the performance of risk assets and any incremental information on the path of the pandemic. The Biden administration has been cleared to at least start the transition process, and as the cabinet is formed and a greater sense of clarity on the political landscape is offered, this will also clear the way for the market to price in expectations for 2021 and beyond. So Ian, it's been effectively a three-day week, but still, we've made some pretty good progress in retracing the bull flattening that was so thematic last week. Yeah, but I think that you're right. What we did see is we saw a bit of a give back in that bull flattening. However, there was some fundamentals behind it that made sense. Specifically, a lot of that bullishness expressed in the Treasury market was a function of the tensions between the U.S. Treasury Department and the Fed, with Powell pushing for an extension of several of the key liquidity programs in place and Mnuchin pushing back. Now, it did resolve in Mnuchin's favor. However, Biden's reported pick of Yellen as the incoming Treasury Secretary has really changed the tone in terms of market participants' expectations for additional fiscal stimulus and even potentially a reinstatement of some of those Fed programs. And now that it seems basically a foregone conclusion that Yellen will be taking the helm at the Treasury Department, the calculus surrounding what form the presumed fiscal package in early 2021 will ultimately take has changed a little bit. Clearly, Janet Yellen has experience at the Fed and knows what it takes to work alongside Powell in aiding the speed of the recovery. And that's also probably a driver behind the risk on move we saw in equities that brought the Dow above 30,000 for the first time ever. In addition, we do continue to see positive news on the vaccine front, but my underlying concern is that while it appears that equities and fixed income are trading off of a decidedly different set of facts, what all argue is actually happening is it's two different timeframes that are really driving this divergence. And by divergence, I simply mean we're seeing upward pressure in equities, which has historically been correlated to upward pressure in rates. But in this current environment, 10-year yields can't seem to breach 90 basis points while 3,600 in the S&P 500 seemed a fairly easy milestone for equities to achieve. We're transitioning to the point of the year where a lot of emphasis is put on the year ahead. We're starting to see the typical array of forecasts come in in terms of where people expect rates to end next year. I think it will be notable as those expectations develop and are refined further to see 
how the consensus develops. We remain of the mind that it's very much a range trading market. There will be opportunities to buy treasuries with 10-year yields above 1%, perhaps as high as 125, but the seasonal patterns still remain relevant. So a bearish start to the year eventually devolves into a range-confirming bid, flattening into the summer months, and then a resurgence of optimism once we actually see the real economy transition back to some version of normal. And it's at that point the economic data is going to be very important. We've talked a lot about the fact that the normal that exists on the other side of the pandemic is going to look different than the economy of 2019. And in determining what that looks like, it's going to be up to the fundamentals in the middle of next year, call it June, July, and the data covering that time frame to really calibrate what hiring, spending, and inflation look like in a world where the vaccine has started to be taken up in a meaningful way, but still the memories of 2020 are going to be fresh enough in people's minds that there's going to be behavioral changes that linger for years to come. That's an interesting observation about behavioral changes lingering for years to come. I do think that participants in the real economy will look back on the pandemic and they will see that there are choices that were made that had more permanency than they might have otherwise anticipated. And gauging how permanent some of those changes are will really help drive expectations going forward. So for example, the work from home revolution is an obvious departure point. How quick are workers willing to come back to a more traditional office environment? And how interested are employers in making that happen? As we've noted several times in the past, the deferral of costs from the employer to the employee in terms of office space, electricity, etc., have led to a meaningful pickup in terms of corporate profitability, but it is to some extent a strain on the workers the offset being no longer needing to commute. What will be fascinating is the next leg of the work from home revolution. I could envision a world where remote workers are considered more fungible than a traditional employee might have been in the office simply because there's no proximity to power, there's no conversations around the proverbial water cooler. And what does that do to wages? And what does that do to the perception of job security and the propensity to spend? That's the next leg that we will either never see, which essentially implies that most knowledge sector employees are effectively transitioned into the gig economy and are considered much more interchangeable than they might have been in the past. There's also the parallel issue of how easy it would be to outsource a function. If a function can be effectively carried out from home in a higher cost region, what's to say that it can't be even more cost effectively carried out in a lower wage, lower cost part of the country or part of the world. And that makes a very good argument for outsourcing, which again, downward pressure on wages, subsequently an addition to the structural push lower to inflation that we have seen over the course of the last several decades. All of this suggests that a low rate environment is going to be with us for the foreseeable future. And as the systems around working from home over a longer term are refined, we're already starting to see large multinational corporations make the decision to implement working from home permanently on a part-time basis. And what I mean by that is employees may be expected to be in the office two or three days a week, not difficult to imagine scheduling meetings centered on Tuesday and Wednesday, for example, 
with the rest of the time spent working from home. And this suggests a little bit of a hybrid situation versus the one that we've been talking about, which is people will once again need to be commuting back into urban centers into a traditional office environment, but they won't be spending nearly as much time there as they did before the pandemic. If there is a service sector firm whose revenues are based on that commuter crowd, how do you weight the decision of where to reopen and when to reopen if your traditional clientele is not around nearly as much as they once were? And bringing that logic forward to something on the inflation front that you touched on, Ian, another important nuance on how we ultimately emerge from the pandemic will be any pent-up demand and increased spending that results from slightly stronger household balance sheets, given the fact that spending was curtailed so much during the last nine months. And here I'll come back to the breakdown between goods and services spending. While goods consumption will undoubtedly benefit from this pent-up demand, it's less clear to me that services will to the same degree. Just because you didn't go out to dinner throughout March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, doesn't mean that after the vaccine is widespread, you're going to be going out twice as much. The same logic applies for an array of service firms and will simply lengthen the time it takes to see services spending recover back to levels we saw in 2019. Well, to be fair, one might not be going out twice as much as they were in 2019, but they will be going out exponentially more than they were in the middle of 2020. And I think that that's the point as we think about how this is going to flow through to the economic data, there will be some meaningful base effects that make the headline numbers look impressive and keep the positive economic sentiment rolling forward. But we are still in the middle of a global pandemic and the COVID-19 case counts continue to rise. And while we do have protocols in place that help flatten the curve of the coronavirus, it is not entirely clear to me that the new hotspots, which are less in the urban centers and more widespread, at least in the U.S., are going to be as willing to quickly embrace the protocols as we saw in some of the major urban centers at the beginning of the pandemic. And let's quickly circle back to this idea that you mentioned earlier about what happens to all the frontline service sector providers that are relying on employees who commute into work. Let's use the local salad place as the go-to example. Let's imagine one is producing hundreds of salads every day for the crowd that works in highly populated, during the day at least, urban areas, and then subsequently commutes back home in the evening. Clearly, the demand isn't going to be what it was if we're in an environment where people are working 50% of the time from home. The trickier question is, does this firm that really benefits from population density follow workers out to the suburbs? I would think not. If for no other reason, then the scalability isn't there. And so if you can't achieve those economies of scale, we might be witnessing the demise of a certain part of the highly competitive service sector. And this is very important in evaluating the rebound in the labor market, especially ahead of next week's NFP print, which will cover the time frame when we began to see the more troubling acceleration in COVID cases and lockdowns coming back into vogue. And with the service industry making up such a large share of total employment in the U.S., the reality that this subset of the economy remains the most vulnerable is a troubling backdrop going into 2021, vaccine or not. And if one of the most lasting parts of the shift in behavior during the pandemic is an emphasis on working from home, so it will be years before the U.S. economy transitions back to anything that remotely resembles normal. What is normal? I don't know. I don't remotely resemble it. 
The week ahead will potentially be a very defining one for the Treasury market. We start with month-end and all the associated buying demand for duration that tends to occur at the end of a given month. There's a particularly significant duration extension in the benchmark this month, so we'll be watching the tone that's set as December gets underway. We also then see a variety of economic data between the ISM manufacturing, ADP, and of course the non-farm payroll series on Friday. We expect that there will be a fair amount of clarity offered on how the most recent increase in COVID-19 cases has impacted the real economy, most notably the labor market. We are entering the point of the cycle where the momentum from the initial recovery will begin to falter and the fourth quarter's growth prospects will be key in judging how far investors expect the current trajectory to continue and if there is a double dip in production terms, whether that's simply a function of the flagging momentum or the realities of the path of the pandemic remains to be seen. In the interim, we're reluctant to call for a true breakout in the treasury market, either bearishly or bullishly, until we have more clarity on the state of the labor market and, of course, what we see from the Fed on December 16th. And in this context, there will also be at least a few more Fed speakers that we'll hear from that will hopefully provide a bit more insight into what the Fed is thinking about the prospects for a WAM extension, and if not, how they expect that the end of those five key liquidity programs will ultimately flow through to markets and economic expectations more broadly. There's little question that the political uncertainty in Washington continues to play a big role in monetary policy expectations, and with that in mind, we'll be eager to hear what officials have to say. Let us not forget that we are entering the time of the year that has historically been associated with limited staffing levels, limited conviction, traders closing out their books for the year, and as a result, relatively choppy price action that can be quickly reversed. The work from home dynamic does change this somewhat, and it will be interesting to see how that ultimately plays out. That said, risk limits will be down, Interest in taking significant risk into the end of the year will be curtailed, and as a result, more significant swings in prices might prove to be the path of least resistance as we stumble into 2021. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as we Google how to brine a Cornish hen and bake a single-serving pumpkin pie, to say nothing of trying to figure out this Zoom thing, we finally have internalized the lament, who is John Galt? Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. 
Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.